Well, good morning. Once again, we're turning to chapter 27 of the book of Matthew. Well, we're obviously nearing the end of a book of the book of Matthew, which means that we're coming face to face with the core doctrines of Christianity, namely his death, burial, and resurrection. So it's a, a very pivotal point. It's really what Matthew has been writing toward um, all these chapters. You might remember that the crucifixion began back in chapter 27 when Pilate ordered Jesus to be taken to the praetorium. It began with physical abuse. That was the first step. And it came from the Roman soldiers, if you remember. Remember, they they stripped him and clothed him with a scarlet robe and they crowned him with thorns. And then they placed a mock scepter in his right hand. Probably remember all those, those little vignettes, those little scenes. But as you know, providence overrules man's wrath by causing it to fulfill God's will, right? And ultimately, that brings him glory. So each of the shameful acts of mockery pointed to a feature of God's glorious redemptive plan. Remember the crowns and and all the details that we went through reflected truths that God used. And so the evil was made to serve God and to bring out realities of who Jesus was. Same is true with the verbal taunts, the, the next section really of the, of the crucifixion. Remember the thieves and the religious leaders and the crowds unwittingly brought light to truth as they were taunting him and jeering him and mocking him. The mock sign above his head, if you remember, really became a billboard to the world and for the whole world to see. And it said, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. Right there, a billboard, a blasting of who Jesus is. And their mockery made a point to the world that Jesus is in fact a king and a king of the Jews. Remember they spoke of the temple being raised? That spoke of Christ's resurrection. So it brought attention to the fact that he was going to be resurrected. Again, they mocked him as a a king, which he is. They mocked him as the Son of God, which he is, that is true. They taunted him and his ability to save, which he does. And they even mentioned belief, which is necessary, of course. So what they meant for evil, God meant for good. And that should encourage us, no matter what circumstances we're in, no matter what we see in this world, None of it is beyond him being him using those realities to bring about his will. Each taunt brought attention to who Jesus is and what he came to do. Well, that brings us to the scene of his death. This is the highlight, really, this section of the entire book of Matthew and the book of, of course, the 66 books of the Bible. All the Gospels include it, but Matthew takes a a little different angle on it. He he has a little different approach. The other writers don't include what he really includes, and that is dramatic events that took place that surrounded the cross. So Matthew here is going to highlight some very meaningful supernatural events, and each of them have a meaning, just like we've seen in the other previous texts. But they're more than spectacular events of power. They're really God's commentary on the meaning of the cross. So God is going to create these these supernatural events to help explain what it meant for Jesus to die for the world. It's a beautiful passage, and I think you're going to enjoy as we unfold it. 
So let's take a look at it together, starting in verse 45, and let's see what took place. Verse 45, it says, now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. Now, what is this about sixth hour and ninth hour? What does all that mean? Well, to make sense of that, we have to understand the Jewish day. Their days began at six in the morning and they ended at six six o'clock in the evening. Our our days start at 12 midnight, go to the following 12 12 o'clock, but they started in the morning. And so their day started with sun up and it ended with sundown. Now, according to Mark and Luke, we know that the crucifixion began at the third hour, which was about nine o'clock in the morning. Then the land became dark, and that happened about the sixth hour, which is about 12 o'clock noon. And finally, the Lord died in the ninth hour, which would be about three o'clock in the afternoon. So there's a six-hour period here that Christ is on the cross. And we know that during the first three hours, there was daylight, and that happened between 9 and 12, and that's when Jesus endured all the mocking and the sarcastic taunts from the three groups that we looked at last week. So it was during that morning that he was verbally abused. And then between 12 and 3 in the afternoon, darkness covered the land, And it was during those three hours that these spectacular events or these miracles occurred just as Jesus was bearing sin. Now, so what we have to see here is a a sharp contrast between the morning and the afternoon. It's a big difference in what happened here. The morning consisted of sunlight and lots of shouting, lots lots of taunts. And that was done, of course, in broad daylight. It's recorded that Jesus spoke three times during those first three hours. The first time he prayed on behalf of those who were crucifying him. Remember, you know the prayer, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then a little later, he responded to the repentant thief and assured him that he would receive a place in paradise. Remember, he repented and Jesus said, you'll be with me in paradise today. The third instance occurred when he gave his mother into the care of John. He looked down and saw his mother and saw John, and he basically said, John, take care of my mother. So so he spoke three times from 9 o'clock to 12. But when we come to the afternoon, there's a real dramatic change, and this is significant. Suddenly, the sun goes dark, and the land is filled with darkness. So we go from loud shouts in the daylight to silence. There's nothing really recorded until the very end of the second half of the crucifixion from 12 to 3. There's really not anything recorded, so we really don't know what happened. Maybe just silence because of the shock that at midday, the earth grew dark had to be a pretty startling event, wouldn't you say? Now, it was during this time then, in the morning, that man spoke, and now it's time for God to speak. Man has had his word, and now God's going to speak. But he doesn't speak audibly. 
He punctuates the Lord's death with six breathtaking displays of His power. We're only going to get through part of them this week because they're so massive and they're so significant. It's take two weeks. It's going to take two weeks to get through this. So the scene before us then is that God has the very last word. So at 12 o'clock noon, the darkness covered the land. That means that there was dark suddenly and completely it goes dark for three hours. We should ask the question, why? Why does the earth grow dark during those three hours? And, and what does it mean that it grew dark? Well, we can't really understand darkness unless we understand light, right? Because darkness is the absence of light. Both light and dark are these broad motifs that run all the way from the Old Testament through the New Testament. Broad categories that speak to us very, very clearly. And they function side by side. There's light and there's dark. Sometimes they're compared and other times they're in direct conflict. As you probably know, light frequently includes and indicates righteousness, purity, and salvation. So it's associated with life, especially a life of blessing, a life of prosperity. And it depicts primarily the light of God. It depicts primarily salvation. So we have light. Jesus is light. Luke tells us that when Christ was born, the glory of the Lord shone around the shepherds. There must have been like a big light around them, a big glorious light to indicate that Jesus had been born. John describes the Lord as the light of men, the true light that came into the world to enlighten every man. Jesus himself calls himself the the light of the world. So light then symbolizes everything that's positive. It it symbolizes everything that's pure. It symbolizes everything that's, that's righteous. It symbolizes eternal life. But darkness, on the other hand, is negative. Most crime, by the way, is committed at dark. And there's a reason for that. It's associated then with unrighteousness, sin, and in particular, judgment. And it depicts chaos. If you remember, before the world was formed, there was, there was chaos. It, it reflects ignorance. It reflects confusion. And it reflects, of course, sin. So we have these dual motifs that are opposed to one another, a, a conflict, and, and we see it in culture. There's the white horse and the dark horse, right? There's good and there's evil. And so these motifs are carried out, of course, Um, in culture. So the last three hours then, or the first three hours was light, and then it became dark. God is telling us something very significant by this supernatural change in the world. So what does it mean? It means that God is now speaking. Jesus is on the cross, so what we have is God's explanation of the cross. So these events, again, are God's commentary on what it means that His Son is dying. So the first commentary He makes is that there is darkness. Now, why did God use darkness? Well, some say that 
God was veiling the dishonor of his son. In other words, he kind of put a veil over it so people couldn't see how awful his son was suffering. The problem with that, though, is that it it seems sort of contradictory to God's purposes. Because as we look at the rest of the context, we see very clearly that the indignities of Jesus, what he suffered was done open so that everybody could see, right? So God wasn't hiding the suffering of his son. And so that would seem to be odd that now suddenly he's, he's hiding the dishonor of his son. It doesn't seem to fit real well. I think the most plausible explanation is that the, the darkness here represents God's judgment on sin. So as the darkness then comes down on the earth, what is Jesus doing? He's paying for the sins of the world, isn't he? They coincide perfectly. So God here is punctuating the importance of what his son is doing, that he's dying for the sins of the world. He's bearing our sin. And God says, I want you to know this. I'm going to make the earth dark. And of course, that is a a symbol all the way through the Bible of sin and judgment. So darkness here is God's commentary on the fact that Jesus was bearing the sins of the world. Now we know that God caused it, right? There's no such thing as mother nature. Everybody agree with that? It's father nature, right? God controls all that stuff. And he controlled the earthquake in Haiti as I prayed about this morning. You do pray for them because um, they're, they're, really, they're really suffering. I understand that the it was in the southern part of Haiti, so Nehemiah Vision, they didn't suffer hardly any damage or anything, so everybody's good there. So that's a blessing. But God controls those things. Now, some say that it must have been a solar eclipse. If you've been around long enough, you know the solar eclipse of the sun? Do you remember that song? Anybody remember that? Okay, well, never mind. I could sing it for you, but I'm not going to. Anyway, I can't been thinking that song all week. Solar eclipse of the sun. I'll sing it for you. You know? Anyway, it's been in my ears. Can't get it out. Can't get it out. But it really couldn't have been a solar eclipse. It's really impossible because Passover was always during a full moon. And we know astronomically that was impossible that there would be an eclipse. So it really wasn't an eclipse. Besides that, eclipse typically only lasts a few minutes, not three hours, right? God could have done that, I suppose. But I don't think that's the best answer. So what what is the best explanation? It was just a supernatural, divine event. God somehow, we don't know how for sure, made the world grow dark. So how widespread was the darkness? Well, we're told that it it fell upon the land. So was it local or was it universal? Or was it, was, it, was it across the whole universe? Was it just the earthly globe? Or was it just a small area of Jerusalem? You might remember in Exodus that when God brought all the locusts on the land of Egypt, it was darkened. So that was a very localized judgment and just covered basically that area. So if we see that then as a foreshadowing of the cross, then only the land of Israel fell dark. 
I think that it was probably at least global, but we don't know for sure. The word land can actually be translated earth. So again, it could have been the earth. But the size really isn't the issue issue here. What is important is that it coincided exactly with the time that Jesus became a sin offering for the world. The timing is not a coincidence. It's a commentary. And God is saying, as my son hangs on the cross, he's dying for your sins. Darkness certainly had to get everybody's attention, didn't it? So darkness here was crying out against the blackness of their sin. So the first stunning event then was darkness, and that was characterized by God's judgment. Now that brings us to the second remarkable event. Look at verse 46 with me. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Out of the darkness comes this screaming question from our Lord. As I mentioned, the scriptures are silent on really what happened during these three hours, but suddenly they hear Christ cry out. Matthew here takes us then to about three o'clock in the afternoon, the end of the second half of his crucifixion. And as I mentioned, Jesus has been on the cross now for six hours, a long time. Then suddenly at three, another extraordinary event took place. There was a separation. There was a separation. After three hours of hell, literally, Jesus experiencing hell for every sin of every believer of all times, he's experiencing the full wrath of God for every one of those sins. It, was, it became unbearable. So at the very end here of those, dark, those three hours of darkness, Jesus cries out, why? Because he had been forsaken. By the way, this is not really the first time that Jesus felt some separation from his father. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 6 say, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, that Greek word means the essence of God, the nature of God, he was God. But even though he existed in that form as God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, since Jesus is God, how could he possibly give up his equality with God the Father? How was how that possible? By the way, there's some mystery here that we can't plumb the depths of. But I'm going to do my best not to overshoot this, to, to try to explain it the best I can. But there's just some, some mystery here that, that we really don't understand. But I want you to see that it's here there's a, we see a difference, an important difference between his personal and his positional equality. There's a difference. There's a difference between his personal and positional equality. He couldn't give up his personal equality 
because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. The Trinity didn't split here. There wasn't a separation in terms of their godness. But that's different than his positional equality. Even though they're co-equal and co-eternal, there was a difference in Jesus' position at this point. You see, the Lord tells us that he didn't see his status and the glories of heaven as something to be clung on to for his own advantage. He had it perfect up there. Perfect fellowship. Perfect everything. But he decided that he wasn't going to just hold on to that and cling to that for his own purposes. So he took on human flesh. And it's in that way that Jesus began to feel some sort of separation from his Father. He's still God. He's still one with the Trinity. But because he took on flesh, because he took on humanity, something changed. Something amazing changed. So listen to what he prayed in his high priestly prayer, because this gives us an idea of what what changed in his relationship to the Father. He says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. You see? He's asking to restore that fellowship of glory. Somehow, that changed. That's that's some loss that he had. He still is glorious, but the fellowship with the Father in that glory was changed. Some of it was lost. At this point on the cross then, there was now a, a full and complete separation. The only time in all eternity, past, present, and future, the only time that there's ever a break or a breach of this kind of fellowship with Christ, it's it's. It's unique. It's one time. And it's an intensely painful separation. Why? Because it's caused by sin. Sin separates us from God. And that's what Jesus is experiencing here. Again, what kind of separation was it? The, the, The Trinity wasn't split, and it's impossible for Him to cease to be God. That wasn't it. So what was the separation? Well, I think we can help answer that question by looking closely at what he said when he cried out. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want you to notice if you have the NASB and it's in your notes this way, that it's in all caps, which means that it's a quote from the Old Testament. Jesus here is quoting Psalm 22.1. And what it's referring to is David was crying out that he felt like God had abandoned him. So the connection is that David was a type of Christ. David, what he did in his kinglyship, it was a type of Jesus. It, it, it looked forward to Christ. So what David experienced here foreshadowed what Jesus would experience on the cross. So he picked up that prophecy from David that was ultimately directed at himself. 
Now let's look closely then at what Jesus did say. I want you to first notice how he addressed his father in prayer. He addressed his father as what? God. And he says it twice. That's extremely unusual. And I believe it's the key to unlocking this passage, at least some of its mystery. It was most characteristic of Jesus to address God as his father. Over 170 times, he calls God his father. And only four times does he ever call him God. It's here. That's the first time. Once to Mary in John 20, 17. Once to the church of Sardis in Revelation 3, 2. And once to the church of Philadelphia in Revelation 3, 12. But what I want you to notice is out of the 21 prayers that Jesus uttered, this is the only time that he calls his father God. Why? What, what, what's going on here? Why is this the only time he looks up to his father to call him God? Well, here's why. Because of the context. What's Jesus doing at this very moment? He's absorbing the wrath of God for you and I. He's taking on the judgment that we deserved. He's taking that on at this very moment. So he cries out to God. He's still the Son of God, but here the focus is more on the fact that he's the Son of Man. His role changed. He's always been the Son of God. He's always, or he became the Son of Man when he was born, but that's the focus here. He's the Son of Man. In those 90 minutes then, He was taking our place, bearing the punishment we deserved. Think about it. Only God can save. Only God can save. For us to be saved, we have to cry out to God. In other words, He was fulfilling what theologians call the substitutionary atonement. These are big words that Christians ignore. And we, friends, we can't ignore these words. These are significant words that are in the Scriptures. This means that Jesus stepped in and took the punishment that we deserved. Most of us are familiar with 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. What a deal. He bore our sins in His body so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The great exchange. He became as if He were a sinner and we became as if we're perfect. Isaiah describes substitutionary atonement this way, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. So Jesus here was separated from fellowship with God because of sin. 
He felt the separation as a human being, the way we feel the separation from God as human beings. It's as if we're on the cross, but thank God we're not on the cross. He's on the cross, and He's there for you and I so that we wouldn't have to bear eternal wrath for every thought, word, and deed the millions of times that we have failed Him and sinned against Him. So he looks up as if he's us, and he's crying out to God. Amazing passage. Listen, friends, he was in our place calling out to God because he was forsaken. It was as if that it was us crying out to God because of our separation from God. Sin separates us from a holy God. I want to draw your attention here to one other point that I think is significant. You know, as believers, we share every feature of the person and work of Christ. Everything that's His, every merit, everything is His, has been imputed to us if we're a believer in Christ. Because Jesus fulfilled the law, we're counted as having fulfilled the law because he's given us his merit in doing so. And you do know, by the way, that in order to get to heaven, we have to fulfill the law perfectly, right? We can't make one single error. We can't have one single misjudgment. We have to have perfect obedience. If we mess up once, we start all over again. Jesus walked a perfect life. And he said, if you'll believe in me, I will credit that to your account. So God can look at you and see perfect obedience. Friends, theology is important. It creates worship in our hearts. So we we receive the merits of his perfect obedience because he paid the price. He paid the price for every one of our sins and we're completely forgiven past, present, and future. Because he rose from the grave, we share his victory over death. The grave couldn't keep him, and because it couldn't keep him, and we've been united with him, it can't keep us. Every hope we have rests in the full merit of Christ. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead raised us up from spiritual death to spiritual life. The resurrection is proof that God can take those who are spiritually dead and make them alive together with Christ. That's what Lazarus illustrated. Remember he said, Lazarus, come out. And he immediately came to life. We sang about the power of the cross. Do we really get that? It's everything. And ultimately, it's the only thing. The power of the cross. So if we place our faith in Christ, we share all that Christ accomplished. All that he accomplished in his life. All that he accomplished in his death. All that he accomplished in his resurrection. But what about the fact of his being forsaken? What about that? 
Was that part of the accomplishment on our behalf? Yes, it was. And here's how. The fact that Jesus was forsaken for our sin guarantees our eternal security. It guarantees our eternal security. Let me explain why that is. Jesus Christ, in bearing our sins, was forgiven on our behalf so that we wouldn't be forsaken. That's one of the benefits of trusting in Christ. He was forsaken on our behalf. You see, abandonment is the punishment for sin that hasn't been punished. But if our sin has been punished, how could God ever abandon us? And the answer is, He can't. Jesus took that abandonment. He took that being forsaken. He experienced that punishment for sin so that we wouldn't have to. There are a tremendous amount of Christians who believe that we can lose our salvation. Some of you were taught that way. Some of you I know for a fact were raised with the insecurity of thinking that if you ever commit whatever sin they describe, whatever sin or standard they make, that you were going to not go to heaven and that you were going to lose your salvation. That's very, very unfortunate because it undermines the cross and it undermines the sufficiency of Christ's death. It either he either accomplished it or he didn't accomplish it and he didn't miss any sins. The Catholic Church along with other denominations have determined there's this category of sins that if you commit these sins all your salvation is going to be lost. Everything Christ did for you is going to be unraveled. Of course, they don't consider election and predestination and all the, the, the realities before we are called and before we come to know Christ. Really? All of that is unraveled? Our security in Jesus Christ is based solely on the fact that Jesus completely drained God's wrath. There wasn't a drop of God's wrath left for those who would believe. Because He paid it all. For believers, there's nothing left to be punished for. He paid it all. He paid our debt. He took our place on the cross. And He was forsaken so that we couldn't be forsaken. Our eternal security is based totally on the merits of Christ's work, not on maintaining our own salvation. If you have to maintain your salvation by certain behavior, then you have a works gospel. Does that make sense? You don't get saved on grace and then maintain it by works. Grace is not grace if it's mixed with works. Romans 11. I always ask this question when I'm in conversation with those who believe they can lose their salvation. I recently asked this question to a very nice gentleman I was having a conversation with. Didn't believe the Bible, by the way, 
but claimed to be a Christian. And my question was this. Can you tell me how eternal life can be temporary? How is that possible? How can eternal life be temporary? It's a great question because they go, that puppy dog look. They're thinking. It's, it's, and you're not doing it to be condemning. You're getting them to think. How is that possible? It says eternal life, everlasting life. How could it be temporary? If we could lose our salvation, then we'd have to work for it. The truth is, we have eternal security in Christ. The punishment of abandonment has been paid in full. And listen, as Jesus was being forsaken for our sin, here's how God responded in complete satisfaction. If you're a believer in Christ, God looks at you with complete satisfaction, positionally anyway. It's, it's a tragedy. And, and it almost comes, maybe I shouldn't say this, but it almost comes very close to blasphemy to say that what Christ did didn't accomplish it. There's a lot of people who believe this, and I believe some of them are Christians, so I, I just think there's, 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 somebody says it's lousy theology. But friends, do you understand what's at stake? If I say that I can lose my salvation, do you understand how that undermines the sovereign grace of God? It's, it's a tremendously big area. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, no matter how you fail God, He is not going to let go of you. He promises He won't. Now, as we come to verse 47, we begin to hear the taunts and the jeers again. Again, we, maybe they were silent for these, almost these whole three hours. We don't know. There's no record that I know of. And notice what it says. And for some of those who were standing there when they heard it, began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. There's a number of explanations for this. Some scholars say that, well, they misunderstood what Jesus was saying. They thought he was calling Elijah. Elijah and my God in the original languages are very similar. They sound very similar. So some say, well, they heard him, but they, they, they didn't hear him properly. I don't believe that's what's going on here. Why do I say that? For three reasons. First of all, I believe that the ones most likely that are speaking out here were the chief priest and the scribes and the elders. They're the ones who up in verses 41 through 43 were still trying to deceive the crowds. So I think they're still trying to convince the crowd that Jesus is a fraud. I think, I think they're lying here. Secondly, I don't think that there was a misunderstanding because they knew Psalm 22.1, which Jesus is quoting here. They knew it well. They had memorized it, recited it. They sang it. Thirdly, according to verse 46, Jesus spoke in a loud voice. So it really wasn't something that they didn't hear. So I take this, that what they're saying here is just an extension of the cruel 
cynical mockery. And that seems to fit the context the best. So here's what they're saying. This dude that claims to be the king of the Jews, he's nuts. He's insane. The poor guy is even calling on Elijah thinking that he's going to have a kingdom. Listen to him. He's just deranged. At this point in the narrative, the other gospel writers tell us that Jesus cried out, I thirst. One of the, one of the horrendous tortures of the crucifixion is severe hydration. Your body just runs out of juice. And so Jesus here was extremely thirsty, probably more so than we've ever been. So this was the fourth time Jesus cried out, first time the, or fourth time that he spoke. I want to look at verse 48. I want to, this draws us into that moment a little bit. Immediately, one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. By the way, as a side note, we see pictures of the cross. That may have been about the right height. You know, we see pictures of them way up in the sky. This, a reed is about 18 inches long, so an average six-foot man with his arm extended with another 18 inches reached Jesus' mouth. So he wasn't real super high. And remember, they have guards all around, so it must have been somewhat easy to grab the victim off of the cross. That couldn't be if he was really super high in the air. So it wasn't really high off the ground. But as soon as the Lord spoke here, someone, we don't know who, ran and got a sponge or hyssop and filled it with cheap sour wine, put it on the end of a reed and raised it to Jesus' lips. Now, was this an act of mercy? Possibly. I wonder if it might have been the centurion soldier who got saved. It was likely a soldier. We don't know for sure. So it might have been a kind gesture. However, it might not have been a kind gesture. And here's why. Because giving victims of drink, of a drink, kept them alive and prolonged their torture. So even though they were very, very thirsty, if you gave them drink and hydrated them, there's a chance they're going to live longer and they're not going to experience the relief of death as a believer anyway. So we really don't know their motive. I think it, we, we can kind of speculate, but I think we have to be careful with that. But this was a fulfillment of prophecy, by the way. Psalm 69, 21 says that they gave him gall for my food and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar or sour wine to drink. Friends, over and over and over and over again, God keeps telling us this is right on track. Every detail is right on track. Verse 49, we see how the others responded, but the rest of them said, well, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Like Psalm 22, they knew Malachi 4.5, they knew that God promised to send Elijah before the day of the Lord. But again, I don't believe this was sincere. I think it was a sarcastic mockery. So that brings us then to the third striking event, and that's the Lord's death. And it's here that we see salvation is complete. And this will be the fifth 
and final words our Lord ever speaks in his earthly body. Notice with me verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. This is it. This is it. This is the final moment of his life. Matthew, again, is kind of brief. He leaves out some of the details. John records that Jesus bowed his head and said, it is finished. I love the order of that. We'll come back to this in a minute. When he died, it would be natural for his head to bow. But it said his head bowed first. He was worshiping the Father. As he was dying. I think that's what it means when it says he bowed his head. The Lord's work here that his father sent him to accomplish was now complete. So how did he die? It says he yielded up his spirit. Luke adds that he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The Greek word here for yielding up means simply to let go. It just means let go. Very simple Greek word. What I want you to see here is that his life wasn't taken by man. I know the scriptures say that they put him to death, but in reality, nobody actually killed him. Instead, he gave his life up. Kind of a new meaning to that. He gave his own life. Friends, this is one of the clearest testimonies of his deity. And you say, well, how's that? None of us in this room at this moment can give up their spirit. We can take our lives, but none of us have the authority and none of us have the power to simply let life go. He just let it go. He said, I have the power to lay down my life and I have the power to raise it up. So Jesus at the exact moment that was determined, dismissed his spirit. He gave up his life. He didn't take his life. He gave it up. And we can't do that. Only God has the authority to do that. Luke again tells us that he dismissed his own spirit. And then it says he breathed his last breath. I don't know whether you've ever watched somebody die, somebody you love, but that last breath goes on and on and on and on. It's like, it's like God pulling the breath out of the person. It reminds me of Genesis where he breathed life in, and now he's breathing life out. He is life. I'm going to stop here because, like I said, I'm going to need next week to finish the rest of this scene, at least next week. But I want to conclude by looking at John's account. And the reason is because what Jesus says here in his final words is so crucial. And I think you'll be encouraged by this. So let's look at John 19, verse 30, one more time. It says, therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. 
And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The dying words, the, the, the final words of a, of a dying man are extremely important because they, they seem to project the most important thing in his life. Well, that's certainly true here with Jesus. His very last cry as the Lord Jesus here on earth was, it is finished. Monumental words. It isn't three words in the Greek. It's one word. It's the word teleo. It's, that's the lemma. That's the base word. And it means that something is complete. Something is accomplished. As we noted earlier, he shouted this word with a loud cry so that everybody could hear it. He cried out, it is finished. And then he gave up his life. We're still hearing that today. It was a shout of triumph. It was the proclamation of complete and final victory of what he came to do. I know this is going to be a very, very strange ending, but I want to end on a lesson of grammar. You can go home and say we learned grammar. The implication for our lives is found in a verb tense. And I want to teach this to you this morning because it's profoundly important. The, the word teleo is in the perfect tense. And the perfect tense describes an action as complete. This is important, so hang in there with me. I know grammar may not be the most exciting thing in the world, but after this sermon, you're going to love grammar. Because so much of it hangs, so much of our hope hangs on that. The perfect tense presents an action as completed at some point in the past with the results continuing into the present in some contexts forever. So something that was completed in the past and the results continue. Let me give you an example. What do I mean if I say I have closed the door? What do I mean by that? What well, has two meanings? First of all, it looks backward to a time when I shut the door. So I'd say I closed the door. You'd think, okay, it's sometime in the past. Pastor Jim closed the door. But it also has a present meaning. As a result of shutting that door in the past, it still is closed. You see how it looks in the past at a moment, a completed action, and it continues on into the present. The entire meaning is that I've closed the door and it continues to remain closed. So when Jesus says it is finished, he accomplished salvation completely and finally at three o'clock. And with that perfect tense, it's complete and continues to be complete to this present time. So it was finished and it continues to be finished. I want you to see a number of verses here, how this, this same tense, this same verb tense is used in other salvation passages. I want you to look at Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. But God being rich in mercy, notice the but God. I like that. Because it all depends on but God. 
Everything before it is hopeless. Everything after it has hope. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, even when we weren't lovable, even when we weren't a bit righteous, he made us alive together with Christ. Now watch this. By grace, you have been saved. That is a perfect tense. At some point in the past, God saved us and salvation continues. It's permanent. Paul says it again in verse 8. He says, for by grace, you have been saved. Perfect tense. Very clear. Watch this. Through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not as a result of works. So that no one may boast. I can't tell you how many people... I have showed this passage to that believes that you have to work your way to salvation. And they completely ignore what it says. That's not hard, is it? That's not hard. It says it's not by works. So that you won't boast. So through faith then, through the gift of grace, we were saved at some point in time and it remains forever. The perfect tense is used again with Peter. 1 Peter 1, 3-4. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy... Why are we saved? Because of His mercy. Because we're worth it? No. Because of His mercy. Because we merit it? No. Because of His mercy. So according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. God did the causing to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to attain an inheritance, which is what? That wasn't a very good response. Imperishable, right? We've been given an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, and notice, reserved. Perfect tense. Reserved in heaven for you. At some point in the past, God caused us by His great mercy and nothing of our merit. He caused us to be born again. And we were given an imperishable inheritance which is permanently reserved in heaven for us. Praise God. Should I ask for another applause for God? Okay. I kind of like that. I kind of like that. That's good. Look, Peter goes on. Look at verse 23. He says, For you have been born again. Perfect tense. And he says, We've been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but what? Imperishable. That is through the living and enduring Word of God. At some point in our life, we were birthed with an imperishable seed. And since that seed can't die, we are eternally secure. If we know Christ, nothing can take us out of his hand. He will raise us up on the last day. That doesn't have anything to do then with the circumstances of this earth. You can believe this morning, no matter what happens in our culture, no matter what happens in our world, if you know Christ, you're going to get to heaven. And nobody can change that. 
So all this to say that when Jesus says, it is finished, he meant, it is finished. It's exactly what he meant. Whoever believes in him will receive eternal life. And eternal life cannot be temporary, or it's no longer eternal life. Sin was atoned for. Satan was defeated and rendered powerless. Every requirement of God's righteous law was satisfied. God's holy wrath against sin was appeased. Every single prophecy was fulfilled, and I might add, literally. So when Jesus said finished, he meant nothing can be added. Friends, salvation is not a joint effort between God and man. It's entirely a work of God's grace, granted solely on the basis of faith alone. We can't earn it. We can't work for it. And we don't have to maintain it by following certain arbitrary man-made choices and decisions and standards. That's false. That is a false religion. To say that you have to earn it by works is another gospel. It's an anathema according to Paul. I know we all have loved ones that believe that. But nevertheless, it is true. It's another gospel. So I'll close with this. Those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ are saved forever, rooted and grounded in the perfect tense. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the precision of your word. Lord, we can even see it in the grammar. Thank you, God, for preserving that for us so that we can study it and meditate and search and dig into it and see all the beautiful realities that come out of that. We thank you for your son going to the cross. We thank you that the earth, or at least the land, was covered in darkness as a reminder that your son was taking on our sin. And God, thank you that he experienced the separation because of sin so that we can't be separated from our Heavenly Father. We thank you for the reality of his death, that he secured everything, that he took every single one of our evil, sinful thoughts and words and deeds and paid the eternal punishment for each and every one. Thank you, God, that he was forsaken so that we wouldn't be. Thank you that he died for us so that we might live. What an astounding, unfathomable plan. In Christ's name we pray.